We are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. So go ahead and turn there. We're looking at distinctions, distinctions of discipleship. I should probably be very distinct when I say that. As we read last week, suffering for Jesus' gospel isn't accomplished by a sense of some burdensome duty. There is duty, and there are burdens, but Jesus said, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And I don't know about you, but oftentimes I lose sight of that. i got to do this for the Lord. You know, that's it's not encouraging, and after a while, it gets pretty heavy living like that. We're able to endure what comes in our life because of his word. He is the anchor for our soul, and because his joy is our strength, Nehemiah 8.10. Now, I want to just say, as you can tell, there are a lot of scriptures. Don't worry. These are going to go a lot faster than you think, um, and there are some that aren't up there, but I will reference every single one of them, and if you can't write them down or whatever, this will be recorded. Jesus endured through his ministry with thriving success. He didn't just eke out a living, but he thrived because he lived on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 and Matthew 4.3. And on the night that Jesus established the new covenant, what did he do right before his betrayal? Right after establishing the new covenant? Right before he went headlong into suffering? He worshiped and he sang to the Father, Matthew 26, 30. Worship welcomes the presence of God. His word says he is enthroned on the praises of his people. And in his presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, 11. Let's not forget the incredible gift and power that God has given us to sing songs to him. Today I want to start by asking us a simple question. What's the distinction between a genuine follower of Jesus and a phony? What's the difference between the real deal and the, the fake? How do we discern truth from fiction? Here in 2 Timothy 2.14, would you read with me? Remind them, Paul writes to Timothy, of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So then the question is, maybe this is, you, you weren't here last week. Remind who of what things, Paul? Well, first of all, Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13 to retain God's word of truth. Secondly, 2 Timothy 2.1, to be strong in Jesus' grace, not in his own willpower. And three, 2 Timothy 2.3, to suffer hardship for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you could really boil all of this down to 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. He says my gospel because this good news is personal to Paul. How many, church, how many in the church today still teach and preach Jesus as Messiah promised through the prophets? So you'd, you'd have to go through the Old Testament to do that. How many actually do that? Paul says, do this, remember this. How many teach Jesus as resurrected bodily, not just some ethereal ghost? And you'll see why that's important here in a little bit. Luke 24, 36, I'm not going to read it. You can read it, but for anyone who would posit or suggest or promote Jesus was raised spiritually but not bodily, Jesus himself showed up. They were afraid because they thought he was a ghost, and he said, give me something to eat. And he ate it in front of them. He said, put your hand in my side. Feel the wounds in my hands. He was raised completely from the grave in every sense of the word. And Matthew 1, speaking of Jesus being the descendant of David, which was a messianic promise, a prophecy given to Israel and fulfilled in Jesus, his lineage is detailed, providing that Jesus is the Davidic descendant Messiah of scriptures foretold. A blind man was healed because he trusted in Jesus as, quote, the son of David. That's important. Luke 18, 38 through 43. And Paul reminded Timothy, all of this, to live by this, it's going to require suffering. It's going to require endurance. Just like Jesus said in Mark 8, 31, he began to teach them, his disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and 
be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And just in this last year, that always, I don't know why it never stood out. He always told them, three days, he'll be risen again. They don't seem to get hung up on that part. You can't die, Jesus. Well, hang on. <laughs> Raised again to new life. Did you not hear that part? Paul urges Timothy to remind the other shepherds of the same truth that we read last week in this hymn. Remind them of what things? Look at 2 Timothy 2.11. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. And we know that this was a hymn sung by the ancient church. If we died with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is such a word of encouragement to me, I know. Maybe you don't make mistakes in your faith, but I know I do. <laughs> It's okay. Jesus has his church. Now, this charge here, though, as we see in 14, is followed by a warning. And the warning is, do not wrangle over words. A lot of wrangling these days. Some people have asked me in the, in the past, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm you know, a youth pastor. Oh, what's that like? I said, it's kind of like being a cat wrangler. <laughs> Have fun. <laughs> Anyone who's gone with me, Becky's gone with me on trips. A lot of you folks have helped me with driving students. Man, talk about, it, they call it controlled chaos sometimes in youth ministry. It's controlled. It looks chaotic. Anyway, are you guys awake? All right, just making sure. It's rainy, it's dark, it feels kind of sleepy, just making sure. Wrangling here, this word wrangling, it means to strive, to dispute. There was a lot of that in the early church. A lot of, oftentimes, and I've made this mistake, we have these ideas of the glory days in the early church. They had their problems too. We can't forget that. Sometimes we forget the early church had issues. We read in Acts 15, 1 through 10, the gospel was going to the Gentiles and they were receiving it. Non-Jewish people were receiving Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah of Israel, as their Savior and Lord. And the Holy Spirit was proving that as evidence by manifesting in supernatural ways. And a lot of the Jewish believers in Jesus just couldn't accept that. No way. They've got to follow the Mosaic law. They have to observe circumcision. Otherwise, they can't be part of Israel. Remember, throughout prophecy, there are two people that he makes into one. All that to say, many have this attitude today. Talk about wrangling over things that God does not have us fall on our sword for. For example, if you don't get baptized in our church, if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't Sabbath on Saturday, you're not part of the church. And I've been to churches where that's been the case. It's off-putting to say the least. I remember going to a funeral for someone in, uh, on my wife's side of the family who had gone through, you know, raised up and lived in the Catholic church. And I was, this is my first time ever being to one. And they let us know, the priest said, if you're not part of the Catholic church, please, you know, this is just for Catholics. And what were they observing? The mass or communion. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure I believe in Jesus. Pretty sure he died for me. How come I can't take this? How many people have been ruined from hearing the gospel because of man-made ideas, religiosity? This ruins people from hearing and receiving the pure, simple, unadulterated good news of Jesus. Are we declaring God's doctrine or are we deluding ourselves with men's perspectives and church traditions? We have to be able to divide these clearly. James 1.21, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted. Receive the word. James here is J Jesus' brother, biologically speaking. James, Yaakov, Jacob. He's saying this. He says, receive the word a Jewish man who knew the traditions. Paul said, I'm a, a Jew of Jews, born of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, that doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus. 
my identity in him, who he is, what he says, what he does. He says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, your thoughts, your perspectives, your, your emotions. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Here's your first point. Disciples don't, excuse me, disciples don't wrangle God's word. Pretty simple. We don't dispute over things like that. Paul talked about this endlessly with the church of Corinth. You want to eat meat? Great. You don't want to meat? Eat meat. Okay. All right. That's okay. I fix lamb. You don't have to eat meat. <laughs> okay. Well, those of you who have watched my big fat Greek wedding know that reference. Anyway, that is not an issue for us to separate and divide over fellowship. When I came up here in the Pacific Northwest, I'd never been exposed to such dogmatic conviction in the organic lifestyle. I'm from Bakersfield, man. Chicken fried steak, biscuits and gravy. It's like on the other extreme. Now I understand the benefits of organic, but I saw people getting frustrated with each other in this fellowship over whether or not you did organic or not. I've seen it with school. Do you public school or do you homeschool? Well, if you public school, you don't love your children. Oh, if you homeschool, you, you're a hermit. You're a weirdo. That is not an issue for us to d divide over. That's not in God's word. Everyone has convictions, but what does God's doctrine teach us? And this is why Pastor Rick has been so low test on seminaries. He jokes and calls them cemeteries. Not everyone who goes to seminary is going to come out wrong on the other end. I have people that I love and respect who've gone through seminary. That said, and we're seeing it more and more, a lot of times these institutions, and I mean that in the broadest sense, not just private Christian universities or seminaries, produce folks who know more about church traditions and denominational decrees than God's true doctrine. The delusion of doctrinal differences was also happening in Jesus' day. We can read about it in Matthew 22, 30, 22, 23. Huge section of Matthew 22. What happens? Of course, the Sadducees and Pharisees really hated each other's guts. But what, divide, or what, what unites haters together in a common effort? To kill the truth. The Sadducees were trying to corner Jesus, trick him. Well, wait a minute, because, by the way, Sadducees, they only believed, they only read and believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses specifically. That's it. And as you've heard, they're Sadducees because, well, they're sad, you see, right? You know that joke. <laughs> Why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they asked Jesus about this. Well, according to the law, if a man dies, his brother's supposed to marry his wife. Well, what if he dies and the next brother? And then the next brother. He, she goes through seven brothers. I'm like, brother, you, you probably might want to start thinking, is there something wrong with this chick? All these brothers are dying. <laughs> but they asked, whose wife is she? Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They said that facetiously and sarcastically because we know that the resurrection doesn't exist. You live, you die, and that's it. Wow, that's a sad existence, right? He says, wait a minute. In the first five books, he says, I am the God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not past tense, that's present because he's the God of the living. Well, the Sadducees, broop, they had nothing to say after that. Had them dead to rights. Then he moved on to the Pharisees. Come on down. I won't get into it for sake of time, but these, both of these camps who grew up, who these were highly respected, honored with lots of authority and prestige within the nation of Israel, were living according to the precepts and the philosophies of man, interpretations of God's word instead of God's word. And Jesus brought, brought them back to that. God's word. What do we wrangle over in the church that's not central to God's word? 2 Timothy 2.15. Keep reading with me. He goes on and writes to Paul, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now at face value, you read that and you're like, I gotta got to get my act together, pull myself up by my bootstraps and work, struggle, and strive to get this right. But the opposite is actually true, and I'll make sense here of this in a minute. 
The second part of this, the end of verse 15 says, accurately handling the word of truth. Literally, you Bible students know, it means to cut a straight path. And it makes sense when you speak about God's word. If God's word is the sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, and we're not humble as we use it, we'll get cut. Case in point, Sadducees and Pharisees. They didn't accurately handle God's word of truth. But if handled correctly, it will prove you a competent wielder of God's word. Hebrews 4.12. Put it this way, it's the difference between a child with a kitchen knife and a chef. They can both cut, <laughs> but one of them has a propensity to hurt themselves um, and get ashamed. Um, are you, would you qualify yourself as a child with God's word or as a competent, qualified, certified chef with God's word? Able to accurately cut, dissect, butcher, create a meal from the ground up to present to others. The difference is approved or ashamed, tactfully teaching God's truth. This is where we get the word, or this is an example of exegesis. Not exit Jesus, just make sure. Exegesis, it's a Greek word. It means to draw out from. We're here to draw out from God's word. We don't insert meaning into God's word based on our thoughts and our feelings. We draw from his. Let the churches hear what the spirit has to say, not well, that's your interpretation and that's my interpretation. I've heard that my whole life. And the longer I'm in the word, I'm like, that is never taught here. Well, that's your interpretation. Well, there's only one interpretation. His name is Jesus. He interprets it beautifully. Many endless applications, but there is one interpretation. The new age and new thought philosophy, if you're taking notes, write those in. You're going to hear more of this. And you're going to be, we don't want you to be ignorant. The Lord doesn't want us to be ignorant of the enemy's schemes, okay? These are some of his schemes. Overarching philosophies. The new age and the new thought philosophy teach, you've heard this, that there are many ways to be spiritual and good people. Well, if all spiritual faiths have truth, then why do we follow directions in how we cook meals? Some of you, especially my students, know how much I abhor, I loathe with a passion, ketchup. If you give me a batch of brownies with ketchup in it, we're going to have problems. What I'm saying is, well, that's your truth, this is my truth. If we applied that same logic to our everyday life, nothing makes sense or works. You don't get to make brownies however you want. If you put broccoli and chicken in it, it's not brownie anymore. It's dog vomit, and I don't want to eat it. <laughs> Guys, right? I mean, this is a, an obvious picture, though. We don't get to decide God's word. He has decided his word. It's up to us to listen and to understand his word and then apply it to our lives, which has nuances and is varied. Moses was a great exegeter of the word. Deuteronomy 1.5, he expounded the law. He didn't insert his thoughts, he drew from God's. He didn't write down the Ten Commandments, God did the first time. This is why Jesus is so central. Knowing who Jesus is so central to understanding Scripture. Why? Because Jesus is, he, he are the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Jesus is the manifestation of, the manifested explanation of God's word, John 1.18. And I use that word manifestation intentionally, as you'll see in a bit. Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like the more you know this, somehow God's going to get you in on your own good graces. But it's these that testify about me. This is supposed to point us to Jesus. So then the question is, who is Jesus? That is a great question. I would encourage you to read the Gospels on a regular basis. Jesus is 
the best commentary on what God's word means. I remember when I first started out serving here and, you know, cutting my teeth on the word, learning how to teach it. One month in, by the way, Rick, I hope you're hearing this. One month in of being here as a youth, the director of student ministries. And he said at the first staff meeting, hey, Jake, I'm going to be out. This was in July. You want to cover a Sunday for me? I'm like, like Kramer from Seinfeld. Uh, I can't say no. He's my boss. Uh, sure. I remember that Sunday I came forward and halfway up, this was in the barn, my little, you know, mic here fell out of my hand, hit the ground, shattered into a bunch of pieces as I'm making my way up. Yeah. Sweating bullets. Anyway, Jesus is the commentary. Why do I bring that up? Because when I first started, I saw myself starting to go to the commentaries. I get ready to teach a word, and before I'd open up the Bible, I'd open up commentaries, good ones like John Corson, J. Vernon McGee, and I'd start to read what they thought of the passage I'm going to teach on. And I started to, I'd quote them, but plagiarize their material and teach it. And it just doesn't have the same weight. Why? Because now I'm teaching from what Jesus taught John J. Vernon McGee and not what Jesus is teaching me. Jesus. Jesus is the perfect commentarian on God's word. Jesus doesn't mean different things to different people. There is only one meaning to God's word. I've already said this. Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. I'm a truth. I'm a life, you know, there are many ways to heaven. I'm just one of them. He doesn't say that. To the contrary, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the word of God, John 1, 1. And I emphasize this and I stress it because as much as we've heard it, many people have heard it, they don't actually believe it. They're deceived away from this absolute truth. Truth isn't a fact. Truth isn't a feeling. I mean, right? Science. Do you believe in science? Nacho Libre fans. <laughs> Do you believe in science? Well, science changes. Why? Because science is man's invention to try and understand what God has created. Our understanding changes. Fact and feeling aren't truth. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus, John 14, 6. And that's your second point. Disciples use God's word to cut with clarity. Be careful with commentaries. I remember growing up in Bakersfield had this huge Christian bookstore. Bakersfield is like, at least it was 11 years ago, it's like the Bible pocket of California. A lot of Southerners transplanted there. It's not like the rest of California. It's more like West Texas. <laughs> huge, yeah. Huge, yeah, right? Huge bookstore full of Christian materials. And as I've gotten older, I go, how many times have I turned to a Christian book talking about Christian things when I could just go to the Christ and his book? I'm not saying other books are wrong. It's interesting to see, and God will show us things about himself through other brothers and sisters. But oftentimes, any, worth weight, any writer worth his weight in salt who's teaching us from their book or she is teaching from their book about something about Jesus, they got it from his word. Let's go straight to the source. You know, the, the church in Corinth, I'm of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And some was like, I am of Jesus. We are all of Jesus the Christ. Let's not divide over things that God doesn't call us to divide over. Look at verse 16 with me. He goes on and says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Let me just stop there. He says, avoid it. He doesn't say, spend a, a, a minute or two on it. I have been entrapped in more conversations that I, than I would like to confess and admit on social media over worldly and empty chatter. You're looking at a guy who hasn't lived this out perfectly. I haven't avoided it. And then I get so convicted, and I go, have I just turned someone off from hearing about Jesus because, well, Jake's a Christian. He's a Jesus follower, and that's the way he acts. That's what the church is. There's so much disillusionment and bitterness among young people towards the church. You know, people are going to hate us 
if we follow Jesus. Jesus promised that. If they hated me, your master, why would you be any different for following me? But let's, let's stand on the truth. Let's not get entangled in worldly things. I'm off my notes here. Be diligent, I'm sorry, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Avoid it. Don't entertain it. Don't get sucked into it. He goes on and says, it will lead to further ungodliness. A lot of that going around these days. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymuneus and Philetos. I kind of said that right. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. By the way, that is something being taught today in the church. People are like, the resurrection already happened. We're in the kingdom age right now. That's where something called kingdom theology has come up. We need to work and build God's kingdom to a, a threshold to welcome Jesus back into it. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I hope I didn't offend anyone here, but that is the truth. Jesus comes back bringing his kingdom. We don't bring it. We don't spread the gospel all the way to the corners of the earth, and then Jesus comes. Church is raptured. If you read Revelations, Revelation, oh. <laughs> I hope you didn't hear that, Rick. Revelation, that's an example of being raised up in the church hearing that wrong verbiage. The angels are declaring the gospel while the church is off the earth. The gospel continues. The gospel doesn't depend on the church. We just get to be a part of what he's doing. Now, that's not for us to get idle and lazy because we will be held account with what God's given us. But there are a lot of misunderstandings in the church over things that Paul would say are elementary, like salvation. He calls elementary. And yet, there's so much division in the church. In the late first century, when the church was young, a philosophy called Gnosticism arose. Many of you know about it. And it mixed Bible doctrine with Greek and pagan philosophies. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. There's so much emphasis on knowledge in this culture. I heard a friend say, education's good if it's good education. This knowledge, this Gnosticism is based on mystical inward and emotional approaches. And as I've already said, today's versions of this would be things like the New Age and the New Thought Philosophy. A lot of us know of the New Age. How aware are you of another thing called New Thought Philosophy? It sounds a lot more Christian. Be careful, the devil is in the details. They're similar, though, these two philosophies, but they're not the same, New Thought and New Age. Examples of New Age include spirit guides, crystals, which are believed to possess energy, Tarot cards, psychics, the occult, numerology, astrology. I'm going to put this in one. I might offend some people here. Yoga is based on a Hindu spiritual faith, and it, within Hinduism, there's a teaching, some of you have heard, astral projection. I don't have time, and it's not the focus of the word here, but I've actually talked with students who have practiced that, scared out of their minds. It's real. There is spiritual power in it, but it's a dark power. And many in the church are getting sucked into it. They're allured into it. It's fascinating. New thought philosophy is the marriage of the sciences with spirituality. Examples include something called the law of attraction, or you may have heard it put this way, manifestation. You've also heard, I said last Sunday, universal Christ. Manifestation, I'll explain really quickly. Basically, if you think good thoughts or bad thoughts and you do it enough, you can manifest it into existence. People are doing this with relationships. I want this person to be my boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, partner, whatever. And so they dwell on it and they think about it. And they, do, they pull in everything they can from any spirituality to try and manifest their desire. It's called sorcery, which is what we call witchcraft today. And there are kids, adults practicing this who claim to follow Jesus. Do not be deceived. 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. God's word. 
avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is called falsely knowledge, gnosis, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace, grace be with you. So Paul told Timothy to avoid this opposing argument called Gnosticism, knowledge. We've all history majors heard of the Enlightenment. A lot of that stuff was going on down there. New thoughts, our law of attraction, teaches you can manifest thoughts into reality. Another heresy you've heard Rick teach more than once is preterism. It teaches that prophecy related to end times have been fulfilled. There's no rapture. We're in the kingdom now, etc. Now, if you read 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, and all the chapters of Ezekiel 40 through 48, it becomes very clear that preterism is not true. The church in Thessalonica was being taught and told this gangrenous philosophy of the rapture had already happened was spreading into the churches almost in its inception. Paul had a weighty thing ahead of him. He was he cared for what was happening to the church. I'm going to throw this out. I'm not a name dropper, but I'm going to share this one from my own personal experience. Um, there have been things that I've gotten out of this, but I stopped once I realized preterism and other things that don't hold up with God's word were being promoted. It's called, many of you have heard it, The Bible Project, founded by Tim Mackey and John Collins. It is based on preterism. I heard from his own mouth that the Antichrist, Jesus' return, the millennial kingdom, even sin, evil, heaven, and hell are reduced to metaphors. Jesus taught that hell is real. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Hell is very real. Jesus describes it as real. It's not a parable in Luke 16. He speaks from perfect knowledge of what happened between two gentlemen who died. One went one way, one went the other. Real places. This promise, folks, of higher and secret knowledge goes back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, enlightened, and you will be like God. You will be like God. Why did Satan get his keister kicked out of heaven? He wanted to be like the Most High. And then he says, you will know good from evil. Oh, they did. They ate the fruit. It looked good. It tasted good. And then they realized, oh, naked. Shame immediately followed this new knowledge. Shame, guilt, oppression, and inevitably, death. What Gnosticism was to the early church, New Age and New Thought philosophy is to today's church. And many are falling for it instead of simply abiding in God's word. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And I've heard many people say throughout the church in my years of life that the Old Testament is obsolete. Genesis to Malachi, that was good then, but it's not relevant to now. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of it. I did not come to get rid of it, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And, you know, just a reminder, Paul, Timothy, all these guys, when they read the scriptures, they were reading the Hebrew scriptures. The New Testament hadn't been codified, canonized in their time. And much of the New Testament, all of the New Testament is based off of the old. We got to know all of it, the whole purpose and counsel of God. And in this one statement Jesus makes in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus affirms all past scripture as true and from God. 2 Timothy 2.19, keep reading on with me. Oh, I lost my place. Nevertheless, 
Paul says, as he talks about this gangrene that's spreading in the churches, he goes, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And quote, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Abstain. Don't let it be mentioned among you. Don't take part in it. Don't dabble in it. Young people, leave the tarot cards alone. Get to know God's word. There's corruption in the church. We've heard this. We've seen it. We've experienced it. We've been around it. But he says to Timothy, don't be alarmed. Why? Because God's able to distinguish between the faithful and the fakes. Like he did with Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16.5. Well, we're going to let God decide who really is his spokesman and who the real prophets are. The next day, Moses just sat and watched God divide the sheep from the goats in Numbers 16. And Jesus himself can discern between the weeds and the wheat. Matthew 13, 27 through 40. Again, I'm not going to read it, but that right there is a, that is a parable describing the conditions of the heart and how the gospel of God is planted. Some people, and I've seen it in youth ministry, many of you have, they receive the gospel with joy. They're euphoric. There's so much emotional excitement. And then the moment the heat and pressure of tribulations come in life, they wither off the vine. And then you got others who got rocks, you know, that same group. You got others who have weeds that are sown in among their ranks. And the weeds represent the cares of this world, the pleasures of self, the pleasures of money, the pleasure, love of money. And it strangles them out. They never have a chance to come to full fruition and maturity. The question is, Jesus, the Lord God can discern between his disciples and the deceived. The question is, can we? The distinction between followers and frauds is measured by who listens to, learns from, and lives by God's word. Why does God constantly tell Israel, remember Israel, remember, remember, remember? I got a friend, a really good friend of one of my other friends, but I'm friends with him too, and he goes, remember? Do we remember? How do we remember? The Jewish understanding of remember is to observe. How do I remember to love my wife? By doing it. Anyway, Matthew 7, 15, Jesus said this, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How do you know? How do we know who the wolves are and who the sheep are, Jesus? You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes aren't gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Another example Jesus said, these Pharisees, you do what they say, do not do what they do. Bad tree, they produce bad fruit. But the things that they're teaching you about from God's word, do that. Why? Because it's not from them, it's from the Lord. Um, there have been a lot of pastors who have fallen. Hypocrites. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, not because they didn't speak truth, but because they didn't practice what they preached. And they put heavy millstones of religiosity and expectations on the people. They were supposed to be under shepherds who help the people know God's word and walk in the joy of God's word. Here's your next point. The deceived add to and take away God's word. That's one right there. And I didn't put it here. It's Galatians 5.22. I don't think it's up there because <laughs> they didn't have any more room to put my verses up. Galatians 5.22, fruit. Nowhere in there does it say they're a great orator. They're incredibly intellectual. James contrasts wisdom that's from the earth with wisdom from God. Wisdom from the earth is natural, earthly. It's demonic, and it breeds bitterness and jealousy. But wisdom that's from above, James 3, 16 or 17, says that wisdom from above is first pure and gentle, Wise people of God walk with gentleness, meekness. Jesus had every right, left and right, to cast down condemnation on us, but he didn't. He came to love us, to serve us. He encouraged us into his love. He didn't come to condemn us out of it. True wisdom is observed in gentleness and with a pure heart. I got to move on here. In verse 20, 2 Timothy 2, 20. 
Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to dis, I'm sorry, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, because of this, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, what things? He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, which means set apart, consecrated, used for holy work to the master, prepared for every good work. Paul paints a picture here between common vessels and special ones. Special. Gold, silver, things that we would today qualify as quality, special. I'm going to run through a bunch of verses here. They're up here on the screen. If we're born again, John 3.16, we're new in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're born again, new creature, no longer condemned. Then we need to, as born again, new creatures in Christ, we need to clean out of our body individually and fellowship. We need to clean out from the body and the mind old sin. You've died to those things, so don't quit. Don't keep on living in them. Stop mixing the world's ideas with God's. And there's a lot of that going on. I told you I'm from Bakersfield. A lot more in common with West Texas than it does with the rest of the state. So I come from a place that's very conservative by nature, card-carrying, gun-toting, red meat-eating, all that. But there is a distinction, my brothers and sisters, between the gospel of Jesus, and the American ideas. We need to know the difference. Patriotism in this country is not the same thing as being a child of God. Now, if we go back to what the founding fathers founded this country on, it was based on God's word, which is why we're having issues, because we're getting away from the DNA that made us who we are. But we do need to know the difference. It goes on, Titus 3, 9, 11, 9 through 11, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes. Avoid these things about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. Reject, this is powerful, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. I won't name his name, but there's a man from a podcast some of us have been listening to created a lot of factions and divided people not on God's word, but on his personality. 2 Timothy 2.22. He goes on to Paul. I'm sorry, Paul goes on with Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It doesn't take a theologian to understand what youthful lusts mean, okay? <laughs> We've all been there, done that to some degree or another. 1 Timothy 6, 9, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Have we not seen that within the church leadership? People who get into it and lose sight. You didn't get into ministry. You didn't become a Christian. You didn't become a follower, disciple of Jesus for monetary wealth. Now, if you get it, great. That's not, money's not sinful. It's our attitude towards it. It's how we deal with it. He goes on in 1 Timothy 6, 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And many a pastor, teacher, and prophet have fallen for the promise of wealth. Prophet, what do you mean? This is what the Bible teaches as the way or the error of Balaam, Numbers 31.16. Pastor Rick took us through this not long ago. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.15, Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And there's been a lot of folks within the church who have sacrificed the integrity of following Jesus for the sake of riches. And addressing one of the churches in Revelation 2, verse 14, Jesus told John to tell this church, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. There are some churches that are promoting 
immorality. A lot of you know that. Watch out. How do we know if this church follows Jesus? Do they read from and live by, promote, and hold Jesus and his word, which is inspired by his spirit of ultimate value? Immorality should not be mentioned among the members of Christ. Here's your next point. Disciples desire to please Jesus, not love self. A lot of that going on. Love yourself. Follow your dreams. Believe in your heart. Do I need to go on further with what the, what the Bible says about that? Human hearts need, need change. We don't need to embrace our desires. We need to give them up and embrace God's. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart because your heart is aligned to his. The Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 teaches us to love the Lord with all our hearts, minds, and strength. And Jesus revealed in Matthew 22.38 that if we follow the first and greatest commandment, the second one follows. Matthew 22, 39, love your neighbor as yourself. Right here, right here, Jesus implies that I love others based on how I love myself. Now, hang on a second. What does that mean? Matthew 7, 12, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Where does Jesus ever actually teach us to love ourselves? 1 Timothy 6, 11, but flee from these things, love of self, love of pleasures, love of money, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, God is love, perseverance, and gentleness. Jesus takes love to the next level, and I remember Rick talking with us staff, and pretty much every, well, everyone else on staff got it right. What's the greatest commandment? And we said, love the Lord your God with everything you got, right? Heart, mind, strength. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes it to the final level. He's the commentarian on God's word. John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide, that word dwell, in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Obedience is synonymous with love for God. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, I'm not telling you to do anything that I haven't done myself. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's how we love each other. How far did Jesus go to love us? To abide in God's love means we keep Jesus' commandments. We don't love each other as we want to be loved, but the way Jesus has loved us. That settles the issue. And, of course, the promise of this word brings joy to the doer, not just the hearer. 2 Timothy 2.23. He goes on to Paul, and, or Paul goes on to Timothy. He says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. How many social media debates do we engage in that aren't about Christ? How many things when we stand before Jesus, who, who love Jesus, who believe in Jesus? He's going to go, love you, Jake. Let's go all through all the things you, you did that don't have any weight that I got to throw away and burn. I wonder how many pages out of my life he's going to go, oh. And he's not going to condemn me. I'm going to be like, oh. He's going to go, but you did this for me. I love you. I want to bless you, but I don't want my life to be worth. Uh, I don't want my life to be wasteful. And I'm convicted of that more and more as I get older. Is what we protest and argue over drawing people to or pushing them away from Jesus? James 4, 1. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't the source your pleasures waging war in your members? There it is. When you love yourself... There's going to be war, not just within yourself, but among others. You lust and don't have. You covet, don't have, so you murder. You're envious and can't have, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And I had a friend, I've shared this before, I want to share it again. A friend of mine in football, in high school, his name was, well, we called him Swan, Swanee. 
He was anything but graceful, let me tell you. I was in going in seventh period, junior year, physics, and there's Swan, Robert Swan. Love you, Robert. I think he's changed since then. But anyway, he, uh, I had this shirt that said Gap on it, and underneath in small letters, God answers prayer. Might be cheesy, but I love the shirt. Regardless, he looks at me, his eyes half open, pretty bloodshot. He's like, <laughs> he doesn't answer my prayers. I'm like, okay, Swan, what are you asking God for? Pot? <laughs> well, let me continue to read this to you, Swanee. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Do we ask God for things for ourselves or because we want to love him with what he gives us? Don't get drug into fruitless discussions. I didn't. After Swan said that, I'm like, I don't think Jesus wants to give you things that are hurt you. But anyway, let's get ready for class. I'm not here to debate that. And don't argue from your own point of view. Jesus didn't quarrel with people. He listened to them, and then he shared his father's words. Second to last point, disciples defined by direction of devotion. We are defined by where our feet go. I can say a good word to you guys, but how does Jake live his life? Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Just like we can tell, have an, a gauge and understanding where someone's heart is based on what comes out of their mouth, Luke 6, 45, we can tell what someone believes based on the direction their feet go in life. Now, let's finish this chapter in Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's read the last three verses. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. That one's really hard for me. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Not to be a broken record, but I'm going to be a broken record on this. Jesus, yes, Jesus again, is the perfect example to follow when it comes to kindness wisdom, and patience under persecution. I don't like to be wrong. I, I can take wrong, just like all of you, but man, sometimes people hit those triggers. I'm like, oh, no, you didn't. You did not cross that line. Jesus is going, Jacob, Jacob, be patient when wronged. Don't be a doormat, but be patient. What's the point? If someone you're talking with doesn't know Jesus and they insult you, don't take it to heart. And when people give you compliments, don't let it go to your head. The point is drawing people to Jesus, both unbelievers and believers. I want what I say and do to be an encouragement to you guys to see Jesus, just like I want what you do and say to encourage me to Jesus. Everything we say and do should point people's perspectives to Jesus. John 3, Jesus met with a man from the party that hated him, the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He met with him. Someone from an avowed party that hated Jesus' guts, Jesus took time late at night to meet with him and talk. Jesus didn't waste wrangling over words with the unwise either. In Matthew 15, verse 12, Jesus says, let the blind guides lead the blind. Did you know that you offended the Pharisees, Jesus? Let them, let them do with it what they want. I'm not going to waste my time with people who don't want to actually hear the truth. And Jesus powerfully performed long-suffering love under persecution. Luke 23, 34, he was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And Jesus said, They don't know what they're doing. You and I would be, they know, we would say, They know well what they're doing, Jesus. Call down fire, Jesus. And he didn't. He was patient under persecution. There are some knowledgeable people in the church and outside the church, but remember that knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. 1 Corinthians 
8.1. 1 Corinthians 13.2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. So what is the point of God's word and teaching, Paul? And he would say, isn't it love, Jake? Just like he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Because some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That one causes me to pause. Jake, are you doing that? There are many talented speakers who have captivated many with their intellect and ability to, or, to speak. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not one of them. But what they say, does it align with and abide in God's word or does it dilute and deviate from God's word? That's the dividing line. That's what cuts. What kind of fruit do our discussions create in our hearts and what does it do for those who hear our discussions? <laughs> Grown up in Bakersfield, again, yep, Bakersfield again, Cam. <laughs> that beautiful place. I was introduced to something called a fruitless mulberry. And they're really shady in the summertime, but in the wintertime, man, those critters are ugly. When you prune a fruitless mulberry, you basically cut off all the limbs. And there's just these nasty, what looks like a tree with rheumatoid arthritis, right? Just nasty nubs, okay? No green, no vegetation, not even branches. They give great shade, but they bear no fruit. When our faith, they give great shade, they provide comfort, but nothing lasting. When our faith gets pruned, when it goes through the fire, will Jesus, will we find fruit in our faith? Or will it all be cut away? Do our discussions disappoint and upset folks away from Jesus? Or do our discussions encourage people and give people hope to know and follow Jesus? This is the last point. Uh, worship team, if you want to come on up. I'm going to end with this word. And this one was very convicting for me being in high school. And you'll see why in just a moment. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. <laughs> but only such a word as is good for edification. All my fellow social media goers, let's remember that. According to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Fill your name in the blank. Jake, how far did he go to edify you, to save you? Let everything you say follow Jesus' words and his example. Let's pray. I didn't fully understand, Lord, um, the significance of what I prayed to you at the beginning for conviction and comfort, but I stand here now in the presence of your people, my brothers and sisters, myself having heard my own words from your word, convicting my heart, but at the same time comforting me and motivating me you tell me, look, don't look at the past, Jake. Look forward to the prize. You are my prize, Jesus. You are the prize of your bride. We long for the day we come to be with you. But until that day, Lord, help us to be diligent, devoted disciples of you, of your word. Not to get caught up and mixed up in flattery and false philosophies, but Lord, to stay true to the purity and simplicity of your word, which is profound and able to save our souls and help us to live our lives in application of your word in such a way that it would model it accurately to the Timothys in our lives as folks before us have modeled your word to us. Thank you so much for your word, Jesus, and I ask that you continue to teach us 
give us ears to hear. Give us the capacity in our hearts to receive your word fully implanted and that your word would go deep into the soil of our hearts and that it would germinate and produce great fruit for the blessing of your name and the benefit of those who are in our lives. Lord, help us. I don't think I shared this point, Lord, but help us to be disciples who are slaves to righteousness for the sake of serving you and others. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.